0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada. Today, Dr. John Newfeld continues in the third week of his five-week series in Romans called The Heart of the Gospel. In today's message, Dr. Newfeld will be moving into Romans chapter 2, verses 17 to 29, and talking about what makes faith genuine. Now, let's join Dr. Newfeld in Romans chapter 2.
1: Father, I pray that you would give every one of my hearers today a genuine faith in Christ, a faith, Lord God, that trusts in you no matter what comes. May you answer this plea, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What makes faith genuine? How do you know if your faith is real or if it's a fake? I mean, have you ever wondered that? Christian faith is genuine or authentic when it has transformed us or is in the process of transforming us from the inside out. See, false faith is on the outside only. It's like one of those Hollywood sets. All the houses look great on the street until you walk through the door and look at the inside and discover there's actually nothing there. It's only a facade. That's because false faith is only external. Today, if you listen closely, I'm going to help you to see if your faith is real. And by the way, if it's not, please don't despair. Get the real thing. Now to Romans 2, 17 to 29. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you're sure that you are yourself a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? When you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised... Now, in our study of Romans 1 and 2, Paul has been making the argument that all are sinners and in need of grace. He has begun by pointing out that Gentiles are sinners and then that Jews, the chosen people of God, are sinners as well. And God's going to judge both Jews and Gentiles by the same standard, by their breaking of his law, the Jew who has the written law and the Gentile who has the law of conscience written in his or her own heart. All this is rather straightforward, except that many Jews would have been blind to their own tendency towards sin. They would simply not have seen themselves as lawbreakers, but they are blinded by their own religion. Their devotion to their religion hid their eyes from who they truly were. After having been in the synagogue and having kept all the feasts and having memorized the law and enjoying the Passover and having been circumcised and entering into Jewish worship and kept themselves ceremonially clean and eaten kosher and having enjoyed relationship with fellow Jews, all these rituals had hidden their true sinful condition from themselves. And don't think this is just a Jewish problem. I mean, the last several decades has seen one sexual scandal after another rocking the Catholic Church as priests were found to have been sexually molesting boys. Believe me, these priests kept all the sacraments. But that's not just true of Catholics or people who are pastors. It's just true of all of us. You can be blind to the fact that your faith is a fake. So in order to help us not to let our faith or our religion cloud our judgment— Paul helps the religious Jew to see his sinfulness and therefore his need for Christ so he can move from law-keeping to faith in Christ, because ultimately, our sinfulness should drive us to Christ. Romans 1-3 is not intended to get us to feel bad or guilty all the time, but it's intended to drive us into the arms of Jesus. So let's get to the text. In the first portion, you're going to notice the glory of Israel's religion. You know, it's possible to read this section thinking about Paul as sarcastic about the person he's speaking about, calling this person a guide to the blind and a light to those in darkness, an instructor to the foolish. He seems to heap these phrases up, but I think sarcasm is not the idea. Far from mocking, Paul realizes that the Old Testament in general and the giving of the law specifically is a glorious thing. It's glorious because the Old Testament is the revelation of God. See, God in history chose a people, Israel, to be his special people. Deuteronomy 14, verse 2 says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possessions out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Israel's story is not just another story of another culture that had their religion. Theirs is the story. A story shared by no other people group on the face of the earth. The story of the God of creation choosing them to be his own. See, God didn't choose the Germans or the Italians or the Koreans or the Chinese or the Russians or the English or anyone else. He chose Israel. Study the life of Abraham. There God makes it clear what he has in mind for Israel. God says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. See, in other words, God chose Israel to be the vehicle or the means or the conduit through whom he would bless the Germans, the Italians, the Koreans, the Chinese, the Russians, the English, everybody else. That was their sacred mission from God. And in a very real way, Paul repeats in Romans 2 what the Old Testament already teaches. He tells us what was the glory of Israel. It was, first of all, a glory of position. They were, in fact, the people uniquely chosen by God. This was true in both their identity and in their special history. Secondly, it's a glory of privilege. There are, in this text, four separate identifying marks of the Jews that indicated that they had a privileged position before God. It was a privilege, first of all, of guidance. Paul says, you rely on the law. A Jew would say, yeah, that's right. I rely on the law. It's my navigational tool that sets the course for my life. I'm not like the Gentiles who don't know who they are and where they're going. It's my privilege to be guided by God. And the Jew was right. Secondly, the Jew had the privilege of a unique relationship with God. Here, Paul says, you boast in God. Now, boasting in itself is a bad thing, but boasting in God, well, that's altogether delightful. And thirdly, there was this privilege of knowledge. Again, Paul says, you know his will. See, every once in a while, I'll hear someone say in a mocking way, I mean, those guys think they know what God wants. But listen, the Jew did know. Why? Why? because God himself had appeared to them when they were in Egypt. He devastated the most powerful nation of the day with a series of 10 supernatural plagues. He brought them out of Egypt. He parted the Red Sea so they could walk through, and he drowned Pharaoh's army. He supernaturally fed them every morning in the desert for 40 years, 2 million of them. And he brought them to Mount Sinai, where the mountain trembled and belched out smoke, and the voice of God spoke to them. And he gave them his law, the Ten Commandments written with the very finger of God. Never in all of human history has an entire nation heard the voice of God, but they did. Now, you tell me, who else in the entire world has that? No, no. It won't do simply to say that they did the best to understand God in the context of their culture. No, no, they knew the will of God. Theirs was a privilege of being guided by the hand of God who knew them, and he revealed his will to them. And fourthly, it was a privilege of wisdom. Paul says they knew what was excellent. From the law came wisdom, and wisdom is a pattern of living. Wisdom is the ability to choose daily those things that are the best. You know, we live in a society that has championed human freedom. And for us in our society, freedom means the ability to choose whatever we want. The Bible calls that folly or the life of the fool. But wisdom knows how to choose what is excellent. It knows how to live. And that's what all the Jewish feasts and the Sabbaths and the the patterns of living and the memorizing of the law were designed to do, to teach wisdom. So that's it. To be a Jew was a position of privilege. It was one where everything was guided by the law, and more than that, every Jew had a mission. Or We could call this the glory of mission. Remember verse 19? Paul reminds the Jew because of their privileged status. They were called upon to be a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, a teacher of the ignorant. With a privilege came a mission, a responsibility to a dark world that had no knowledge of God, that was central to the Abrahamic covenant. In you, that is, through Israel, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed." And Jesus said the same thing when he spoke to the Jews on the Sermon of the Mount. He said, You're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. Well, that's how it should have been anyway, but it wasn't. And when we come back, we're going to ask, what happens when God's people fail to live up to the standards that he's called them to? So what makes
0: your faith real? As we've been learning, our faith is either genuine or it's counterfeit. But real faith is an inner encounter with Jesus available to all who call on his name. And it begins the journey of genuine faith. After the break, we'll hear more from Dr. Neufeld on what makes your faith genuine. Thanks for listening today. You know, hearing this past week's program on the Day of Judgment and and what it means to have a genuine faith in God has made me think once again about the importance of sharing the Word of God to a new generation so desperate to hear. For this reason, we've created In Doubt, a youth and young adult app meant to engage young people with the Bible every day. The app is available to download for free on your iPhone or Android device. So to find out more, just visit indoubt.ca or give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. Now let's rejoin Dr. Newfeld as we go back to the Bible.
1: We've been looking at the glory of Israel's religion, but of course, with that glory came a massive failure. Verse 21, Paul asks the Jew, you who teach others, do you teach yourself? I find that to be an incredibly searching question. I find it so for me. I spent what now seems to be most of my adult life teaching others, and, and I, for myself, hear this question loud and clear. I, I have a painful memory I'd like to tell you about it. It takes me back a few years. I, I can't even remember what our conversation was about. I ho- can only remember that at one point my wife, Kathy, faced me and said in a way that was not condemning, but it was awfully pointed. She said, John, do you ever listen to your own sermons? I think I can still hear her saying that today. I know I needed to hear it then, and I know I need to hear it now, but it's difficult to hear. And that's what Paul is saying. With great revelation comes not only great responsibility, but also an encounter with a failure of our hypocritical hearts. You who preach against stealing, Paul asks, do you steal? You who say that adultery is wrong, do you commit adultery? I can only imagine what Jesus would say to any Christian leader who falls into sexual sin. But here's the one phrase that Paul uses that's caught my imagination. You, Paul, asks, who abhor idols? Do you rob temples? You know, in Paul's day, this robbing of temples might have been a Jewish practice of pulling down pagan temples that were under their jurisdiction and then keeping the gold and the articles in it and selling them off for a good profit— Do you think that there was no one who noticed the hypocrisy in that? And then comes this telling verse in verse 24. For it is written, and then Paul quotes from Isaiah 52, verse 5, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. In other words, your hypocritical behavior is not just failing to be a guide to the blind. It's the very behavior that's keeping the blind from ever finding God in the first place. Instead of you being the pathway to help people find faith, you're standing in the door and you're blocking the way. That was true of the Jew. Jesus offered very similar condemnation, but here's the sad truth. It can be true of the Christian today. The world watches you and everything you now do. They are not your own business. It's the business of the kingdom. You're a light set on a hill. The greatest threat to the cause of Christ in North America today are not unfriendly governments or raunchy television programs or secular humanist philosophies, but the lives of those people who claim the position, the privilege, and the power of the Most High God and actually live lives of hypocrisy. For many people, it's like watching a Hollywood set. Main Street Christianity looks great, but when you get behind the facade, there's no reality to back it up. Years ago, I had a conversation with a woman who both claimed faith in Christ and was known for her torrid extramarital affairs. I asked her how she could reconcile her behavior with her confession. And I kid you not, she told me that she had shared the gospel with all the men she had committed adultery with. I was left speechless. But we don't have to stoop to such outrageous examples to get the point. Perhaps it's our gossip, or our character assassination of others, or our lack of concern for the needy, or by unethical business practices while we teach others not to steal. Yes, even among us, Paul would say, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Religion really can blind a person from the truth. It can provide an excellent facade, but it turns out the facade is only fooling us, not others. And when we turn to Romans chapter 2, verses 25 to 29, the section where Paul discusses circumcision, he's deliberately putting his finger on something that would have made the Jew wins. He's picking on the right of circumcision, and as he does, he wants to paint a picture. Here is the intent of true faith for the Jew, Circumcision was the ultimate religious symbol of their faith. Circumcision was given by God to Abraham and all his descendants after him. The cutting of the flesh was to indicate that the male bore on his body the mark of God, that his offspring after him bore the same position, privilege, and power that he had. But, Paul says, this brings up the point of the true intent of faith— If you want your faith to be genuine, you have to learn the true value of external symbols. Circumcision is of great value if you keep the law. Uh, Then the religious symbol will be a sign of your faithfulness. Let's try to understand that. All of you that have a wedding ring on your finger, have a look at it. No, I mean, take a hard look. Do you see it? What does it mean? It's a symbol of your fidelity to your spouse, that you will love and honor her or him and be true to him or her, forsaking all others to cling only to her or to him, as long as both of you shall live. Now, if you do that, if you keep your vow, your ring is of great value, for it's an external symbol of an internal reality. But if you don't keep your vow, if you're sleeping around, that ring on your finger is God's testimony against you on the day of judgment. See, the same is true of all of the symbols we have. It's true of the Lord's table. It's true of baptism. And says Paul, that's the value of the symbol of circumcision. It only has value if you're a law keeper. See, we need to learn the traps and the failures in external symbols. Those who have spent a great deal of time studying the history and the meaning of circumcision in Israel have come to some very interesting conclusions. Rather than signifying relationship with God, circumcision became a source of pride and even of arrogance. The Gentiles became called the uncircumcised, meaning the rejected by God. A number of rabbis had begun to teach that the only thing that God looked for on judgment day was whether or not a male had been circumcised. Abraham, it was told, would stand at the gates of hell, making sure that only the uncircumcised would enter there. Sometimes I wonder whether things are different today. Think of all the people who will journey to some statue of Mary or of Jesus purported to have cried or bled or done some other silly thing. Think of all the people who baptize their children thinking that it will prevent them from going to hell should they become disobedient in the future. Think of all the people who believe that praying a sinner's prayer will save them rather than faith in Christ, which transforms the heart. Let me step on our toes for a moment. How many parents have said of their children, I know that on the inside, my child has no interest in the things of God, but I know that Johnny or Susie, when she was five, prayed to ask Jesus into her heart. Don't you see what we're saying is that we're placing an emphasis on an external action rather than the reality of Christ living within. There's so much more to say about this. And Paul ends this passage with a radical comment, which has resulted in endless speculation. He says, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. And then he adds, but a Jew is one inwardly. It's a matter of the heart by the spirit. I mean, what can that mean? Is he denying Jewishness? And the answer is no. But the point is quite simple. By Jew, Paul is simply trading on what so many Jews were saying. We're the chosen people of God, and we're his treasured possession for all of eternity. And Paul says, ah, so you want to be the treasured people of God, then know this. Unless the Holy Spirit has transformed the inside, you are not the people of God. And please, we need to be careful that we get this. An encounter with God changes the inner man and the inner woman. That's what it means to believe. True faith is an expression of what is within and not what is without. When we ask Christ to come and live within, something happens inside of us. I encounter Christ, and Christ within is more important than anything else that I can ever look at that's without. May the Lord bless you this day by finding in Christ your joy.
0: Thanks again, Dr. Newfeld, for a great day of teaching. You know, as, uh, as you were speaking, I was thinking just how the Bible can turn upside down some of our assumptions and some of the things we expect in our relationship to God, but the importance of that genuine relationship. And, you know, so many of us have come to faith uh, through things like the sinner's prayer. And yet, where do we go from there?
1: Yeah, you know, I I hope that no one thought that I was speaking against the sinner's prayer. I've used it many times. I've led many people to faith in Christ. I'm sure that many of my hearers will have come to faith in Christ by saying the sinner's prayer. It is the first step for many of us in our trusting Christ as our Savior and Lord. But what's important here and what I'm concerned about is sometimes we ask ourselves, has the person prayed that prayer rather than has the person encountered Christ? So we make the issue the prayer and not Christ or the transformation that he brings, and that's just so wrong. So something that can be so good becomes a religious symbol that leads us in the wrong direction, and that's what I'm concerned about.
0: Yeah, and I think that's probably true about so many of the things that we've sort of embraced in the church. We've made that symbol something more than it ought to have been rather than that authentic, genuine relationship with Christ.
1: Yeah, I think all of our symbols are that, aren't they? Um, you know, I—I I hope that no one thought I was taking a pot shot at those who hold to infant baptism. I mean, I don't, but I'm not taking a pot shot at them, but I'm only saying that how easy it is to take symbols like baptism, uh, symbols like uh, the Lord's table, and then invest everything in the external symbol without having that symbol reflecting that internal reality. And, and that's the great trapping of our own faith. Symbols are important, but at the same time, symbols can mislead us. The very things that help us can mislead us at the same time. And that's the the strange nature of our faith.
0: Well, thanks, John. And uh, we look forward to a continuing series in Romans next week. And uh, as we do, let's all seek to be in genuine relationship with Christ until we meet again. God bless. I hope today's series has challenged you. Are we living our lives to his glory? Are we being changed within? The measure of a faith that's genuine comes from a person that has truly been transformed in mind and heart. Without this transformation taking place in our hearts and lives, we can't be really authentic in our relationship with God and certainly not have a genuine one. Join us next week as Dr. Neufeld continues his series in Romans entitled The Heart of the Gospel right here on Back to the Bible Canada. We are so grateful for your support. And for the month of February, as an expression of our gratitude, we'd like to send you, as our special gift, Dr. Newfeld's series on Philemon, on alternative lifestyle. This series focuses on how the Christian ethic presents a new way of living that transforms all societal structures, including slavery. God wants us to forgive those who harm us, and if possible, move beyond forgiveness to reconciliation. We appreciate you and your loyalty to the ministry. If you'd like to order your free copy today, just give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day.